Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 17 recorded live on April 8, 2011. In December of 1910, the first secular Jewish school opened in New York City. 100 years later, Kol Hadash is an heir to not only traditional Jewish culture, but also the secular and sometimes radical innovations of our precursors in cultural Judaism. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom explores what can be gleaned from this legacy. Last year, I received a postcard in the mail from an organization called Chicago Yivo, which is dedicated to studying Yiddish culture and heritage, based in Chicago. It announced the publication of a new book, and the author was coming to speak. The book was called Passionate Pioneers, the Story of Yiddish Secular Education in North America, 1910 to 1960. It's a big book, because this author, in her research, went to every archive and contacted alumni of every school and has a listing and description of every camp and every school that you could find that fit into this category of Yiddish secular education. And when I went to the event, I had to park two blocks away because it was a mob scene. There were literally over 200 people at this program. I was surprised. I'm sure everyone was surprised. And before the program began, they took the CD out of the back of some camp songs from way back when and began to play them. And the audience, without a single song sheet, sang all the songs because they knew them from 50, 60, 70 years before. But they didn't have the book there because it was delayed in printing. <laughs> so everyone had to order them, and you got a CD in advance, but you didn't get the book until a couple of months later. And then I got the book. And one of my favorite details of the book is on the cover of the book. It's a little hard to see from where you are, but you can take a look at it later. It's a picture of a bunch of girls at a uh, secular Jewish camp who are doing what looks to be a very dramatic dance, all in white dresses. And if you read it very, very carefully, and if you can read the Yiddish letters, you can see that it is, in fact, a memorial dance on the second yard site of Sacco and Vanzetti, the Italian anarchists who have been executed for supposedly planting a bomb. Now, what I love about that image is it, it ties together so many marvelous strands in one. It's the joy of camp. It's the beauty of creativity. It's learning through dance and not just through sitting in rows. It's Yiddish as a living language. And it's trying to connect that Yiddish language with their very, very firm, sometimes fanatical, political convictions. Now, how do you make a cultural Jew? Do you raise them with a traditional Jewish education and hope that they rebel just like you did? <laughs> or do you raise them with your own values, even if it means raising them differently than your own childhood experience? Now, these are important questions not only for a youth education committee, but also a question for our community. After all, we are a truly meaningful alternative in Jewish life, not only if we find it meaningful, but if people come back for their own families, if it has a sense of its own internal continuity. You see, there's a risk we run. In rabbinic literature, there are two groups who are condemned who don't follow rabbinic law. One group is called the Am Haaretz, the, literally the person of the land, the, the peasant, the ignoramus. They don't keep kosher because they don't know any better. But there's also the Apikoros, 
The Epicurus is the heretic from the word Epicurus, the one who knows the tradition and who uses it to break it. Now, if you're trying to make an Epicurus, the risk is you might make an Amharis. You want to raise someone knowing what they're not following by choices and what they do follow by choices, but in the end, are they going to get the joke? Are they going to sing Naase Shalom, we will make peace, without realizing that in other communities it's Ose Shalom, he will make peace. Now the membership of Kol Fadash comes from many different backgrounds. We had a survey just recently, and it was interesting to look at how people were raised. 10% said that they had been raised secular or humanistic. Another 10% or so said that they had been raised not Jewish, but are members of the community either by choice or by marriage. 30% were raised Reform, about 25% were raised Conservative, 2% were raised Orthodox, and another 17% were raised just Jewish, unaffiliated, not connected with any organization, but they always knew that they were Jewish. Now, one of our challenges in humanistic Judaism is to convince those people out there today who were raised Jewish, just Jewish, who were raised Conservative, or who were raised Reform, but don't identify with that today, that they are not the only person out there of that experience. They are not alone. They're not the only one to ask those questions or to look for the answers that we suggest. Now, this challenge of you're not alone was not a challenge 100 years ago. In 1910, there were lots and lots and lots of secularized Jews all living in dense ethnic Jewish neighborhoods, particularly in New York City, but also in uh, Maxwell Street in Chicago, on the near west side, the lower east side of Manhattan, in Detroit, in Cleveland. But there weren't, until 1910, any secular Jewish schools. Now, these Jews who were secularized did not keep kosher. They did not pray. They did not join synagogues. They were mostly working-class immigrants. They worked in very difficult factory, blue-collar or even no-collar conditions. And it was they and their children that were looking for something. But they did do many things that were Jewish. They spoke Yiddish. They read Yiddish. They, they felt Jewish. They celebrated Jewish holidays. They wanted a kind of Jewish community that spoke to them. Many of them were often active in the labor movement. And again, remember, they were in industries by identity. You know, the Irish were the policemen, and the Italians worked in, uh, in certain factories, and the Jews often worked in the garment industry, also known as the schmata trade, or worked for rags. Now, we also observed another anniversary this March, some of you may have read about it, the 100th anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire that the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, which killed uh, the, a fire there, which killed over 100 uh, mostly young women, and almost all the women were young immigrant Jewish or Italian women. And many of the protests that took place both before and after to help organize workers in the garment industry have these marvelous protest signs that are written in Yiddish and Italian, half in Yiddish, half in Italian, because that was what the people spoke, that's what they understood. There was an organization that started around this time called the Arbiterring, which stands for Workmen's Circle. It was a mutual support organization, provided burial expenses and strike funds and adult education and uh, the beginnings of health insurance and life insurance for workers who otherwise might not have been able to get it. And they, in fact, had started some kind of schools, but they were in English. 
and they were basically how to be a socialist. And so a challenge was raised. An article was in the Jewish press by a man named uh, Ben Sion Hoffman, and he wanted to advance a heretical idea that the workmen's circle Sunday school should teach Jewish history and Yiddish. And here's what he said. Jewish children need to know Jewish history and Yiddish literature, just as Russian children need to know Russian history and Russian literature. German children need to know German history and German literature. I would like for the Jewish workers' children to grow up to be not just socialists, but Jewish socialists. Should we radicals hold fast to the opinion that we have nothing to do with Judaism and leave the monopoly over Jewish education in the hands of the bourgeoisie? Or should we make, call it what you want, a compromise and take Judaism into our own hands? Instead of prayers and religion, we will teach our children modern Judaism, Jewish history and Yiddish literature. From a socialist perspective, Jewish history and Yiddish literature are certainly kosher, or at least not trafe, not forbidden. This was the challenge. Could you make a socialist, because that was a political orientation, but a cultural Jewish and philosophically, as we'll see, secular school? Well, the first one started in December of 1910, and very quickly they grew and became successful. And I want to give you an example of some of the issues they grappled with. Now, this is on the reverse of the handout we looked at earlier. Jewish learning, it's a selection of some basic principles of a uh, Yiddish-speaking school of the Arbiter Ring in 18, uh, sorry, 1918, 1919, and 1920. So if you look at the passage on the left in the middle of the program of the Arbiter Ring schools, these are their objectives. In the Arbiter Ring schools, the children will be taught A, the Yiddish language, reading, writing, and speaking. Now, why do they want them to learn Yiddish? It was what the parents spoke. It was what their grandparents spoke. They should know from where they come, to use the Yiddish sentence structure. Um, and even more importantly, they felt it was a secular way of feeling part of the Jewish people, because everyone around them was speaking Yiddish. Even the most religious were speaking Yiddish. It was a way to connect independent of theology. Second, Jewish history. Again, know from where you come. Third, Jewish uh, Yiddish literature. If you're going to learn the language, you should realize it's a real language, not just what people happen to speak. It's not just a slang, it's literature. D, songs, declamations, and dances. It's not only recitation, it's enjoyment, it's life, it's art and creativity. E, certain Jewish and general holidays, labor holidays, and holidays of freedom will be celebrated. We'll talk about which ones in just a moment. Now, it also highlights the fact that the learning is not confined to the school. If this is to be an identity that's modern, that's relevant to who they are, then you can't limit it to what you're supposed to say when the teacher asks you the answer to a question. Discussions will also be held with the children regarding various manifestations in the child's immediate environment, and also regarding the literary selections the child reads in school. One tells the child and reads to him stories and narratives which develop the imagination and the finest ethical and aesthetic feelings. For the same purpose, outings to a park with the children, visits to art museums and other significant institutions with educational meaning. Get out of the classroom. Now, an interesting dilemma came up. You want them to read Yiddish literature, but you've got to get the jokes. 
you see. And the Yiddish writers of this period wrote a lot of marvelously creative revisions and re-envisionings and citations from the Bible and from rabbinic literature. That was their Shakespeare. You know, if I say to be or not to be, you get the joke. But if I said it is not good for humanity to be alone, it's a line from Genesis, if they don't know the Bible, they're not going to get that line in the modern Yiddish literature. So the question was, how much to go back to the past? Because after all, if we're secular, and Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses, so we want nothing to do with something that's too religious and too passive, what do we do with all this religious literature that's the basis of the modern literature? Well, here's what they tried to say. The conference recognizes the great poetic value of the ancient Yiddish le uh, uh, Jewish legends of the Bible and Midrashim uh, rabbinic uh, homiletic works, the narrative value of a large proportion of them and their significance as elements of ancient Jewish history. At the same time, it also takes into account that a great many of these legends are permeated with the religious element, which does not harmonize with the secularism of the Arbiter Ring schools. Ring any bells for people in our YC? How much Bible, what kind of Bible are we going to teach? The conference therefore decides that in the curriculum of the Arbiter Ring School, the legends of the patriarchs shall be introduced, but only those in which the element of God and religion is not predominant. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, there are a few. You know, there's Jacob at the well and in love with Rachel and Leah, and uh, you may remember the scene in Fiddler on the Roof where um, the teacher is teaching the children a story out of the Bible, and it's the story of uh, Jacob having to work to earn Rachel, but he winds up getting Leah, and the lesson that the radical teacher teaches the kids out of that story is never trust an employer. <laughs> you can see that fitting very well with what would have happened in the working circle school. There's also a debate about how much Hebrew to do, because after all, what is Hebrew? Hebrew is religious. Or, if you were a Yiddishist, Hebrew is Zionist. See, they want to create a state in the land of Israel. They want everyone to move there. But if I'm a socialist, I'm an internationalist. I'm part of the working class. And my, I come from a particular culture, but my allegiance is to the universe of humankind that's in my position in the economic scale. So I'm not going to want to create a new nation state. I'm not going to do it in Hebrew, a language nobody speaks, or that only the elite speak. I want the people's language. That's Yiddish. However, the dilemma is, what's the word in Yiddish for Shabbat? It's Shabbos. How is it written? Exactly the same as the Hebrew. Torah, or uh, Sukkot. Sukkot. It's all from the Hebrew, you see. And there's so many other words. Uh, maven comes from mevin, who understands. Uh, chocham, a sage or a wise guy, uh, comes from chacham, wisdom, uh, chokhmah, wisdom in, uh, in Hebrew. So it was impossible to escape it. Some tried to actually rewrite it in different letters, but it didn't make any sense in the long run. So they had to deal with Hebrew on some level. They put it at the end of the curriculum. But then the most interesting detail that illuminates the most is what holidays do they celebrate? Celebrate Passover. Well, that's an easy one. That's a workers' rebellion, right? <laughs> They're going on straight. The conditions of making bricks are unacceptable. Our union representative went to talk to the boss. It was not successful. Therefore, we quit. And it's a walkout. <laughs> OK. So you can see very easily Passover translates into that um, the kind of milieu. 
Now, they also wanted to celebrate Lag Boomer. It was a memory of the struggle of Bar Kokhba, supposedly a major event in that rebellion took place at that event, and Rabbi Akiva was martyred uh, close to that time. Now, the challenge with doing Lag Omer is, what does that stand for? It's the 33rd day in the counting of the Omer, which is the counting of the time between Passover and Shavuot, which commemorates the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai and the harvest of weeks. But they don't celebrate Shavuot. So they're, they're celebrating the 33rd day between Passover and nothing. So where to go? Number three, the first of May. The holiday of labor brotherhood. May Day was a big Jewish holiday for these schools. Hanukkah, again, Jewish self-independence uh, uh, and anti-assimilation. You see, one of the reasons they wanted you to learn Yiddish was to not just become nothing out there, to maintain your distinct cultural identity. And so the Hellenizing that was objected to by the Maccabees was the Americanizing that was being objected to by the Yiddishists who you need to get along, certainly don't not learn English. But remember where you come from, and don't leave that behind. March 18th, the holiday of labor struggle for freedom. I have no idea what anniversary that was of some event that was very important in 1919. Purim, a children's holiday. Costuming, exchange of gifts, other amusements. Well, that's how it's been translated in most liberal Judaisms today. July 4th, American freedom. Lincoln's birthday, emancipation of the Negroes. Well, that's uh, the Schwarzes, that would have been the language we used. Um, but, you know, today's President's Day, because we added a day in January, so we had to find a balance. And then my favorite is number nine, Russian Revolution. The conference leaves to each school the choice of the day, because, of course, some would celebrate the February Revolution, which was the overthrow of the Tsar, and others would celebrate the October Revolution, which was the rise, rise to power of the Bolsheviks. But some would call that the November Revolution, because it was October in the Gregorian calendar, but not in the <laughs> Julian calendar. The, all right, fine because Russia was on a different calendar. So you could imagine the doctrinal splits taking place. And this is one of the challenges in understanding this history, because you had those who would mark the Russian Revolution, but which revolution are you talking about? How are you writing your Hebrew and your Yiddish? Well, if you look at the broad spectrum of all of these varieties, what developed over those next 50 years from 1910 to 1960 was an amazing network of these supplementary schools, elementary and high schools, there were summer camps that were tied into the regular schools with a unified curriculum, so they were learning year-round. There were adult learning networks at the same time as, it, as the children were having them, long before uh, regular, we'll say, or religious-based uh, Jewish adult education became prominent. There were publication houses to produce the materials they needed. There were teacher training institutions to provide trained and certified teachers. There were dramatic productions, radio broadcasts, journals, for children and for adults, written by children and by adults. Fredo Pomerantz Friedenreich, in her Passionate Pioneers book, identified almost 1,000 different schools, 160 different camps that were developed in this period. To take just one year, in 1934, 20,000 children, almost 10% of the total Jewish kids getting any kind of Jewish education, we're getting a mostly secular Yiddish education in one of these organizations. 20,000 children. And these were serious schools. They met three to six days a week, one to two hours a day. After school, multiple days a week, and on the weekend sometimes. 
Now the challenge in getting these statistics is that sometimes it was hard to count them. They each had their own movements, and sometimes they didn't count each other as Jewish. So the labor Zionists would say, well, the communists aren't Jewish. And the communists would say, the labor Zionists aren't worth talking about because they're too bourgeoisie and uh, national. So they each had their own, you know, Mishagas. I mean, I, I'm reminded of that marvelous scene in um, Monty Python's The Life of Brian, where you have the Judean People's Front and the right. People's Front of Judea, and the popular front for the liberation of Judea, which is one person, and, and they, they hate each other, They're, they, they are at, at war with each other rather than fighting the Romans together. Um, I mean, for a non-Jewish comedy Jew, they really put the nail on the head when it comes to this final split. So I'll give you some examples. You've had the labor Zionist group called the Farban, which did programming in both Yiddish, which people spoke, and in Hebrew, which they wanted them to speak because they were a pro-Zionist organization, but they also did a lot of Yiddish education and were largely secular. You had a group called the Sholem Aleichem Folk Institute, which, full disclosure, my mother actually went to uh, one of the Sholem Aleichem schools in Detroit. Um, it was non-political. They were not socialists. They just wanted Yiddish cultural education. Well, they tended to be sort of soft left um, uh, uh, liberals. You had the Workman Circle, which I mentioned before. They were Yiddish-focused, and they were socialist. But they split in the mid-1920s over the communist issue of could they support the Bolshevik Soviet Union, or were they socialists but democratic socialists, not interested in a Soviet-style Bolshevik revolution. And the other half of that split created what became known as the International Workers' Order, the IWO, or the Jewish section of the International Workers' Order called the Jewish People's Fraternal Organization, which there were, I think, 14 different ethnic and linguistic organizations within the IWO. The Jewish group was the largest by far. I think it was larger than all the other groups put together. Um, it was a substantial group. And they offered as many schools as the Workers' Circle did. In fact, there was a battle when they first formed in the 1920s and left the Workers' Circle um, over the camp. It was called Camp Kinderland. And it was started by Arvind Ring by the Workman Circle. But in the split, the communists took it over. And so then the Workman Circle needed their camp, so they started a new camp at the other side of the lake from the old camp. And they called it Kinder Ring. So you had Kinderland, which was communist, but they sang the Internationale. They had Kinder Ring on the other side of the lake that was socialist but not communist. And then the Farban made their camp, which they called Kinderwelt, Kinder, you know, Children's World, but also ran in Yiddish, but in this case Yiddish and Hebrew. Now in general, what were the priorities of all of these schools, what tied them together? They focused on three things, Yiddish language, Yiddish literature, and Jewish history. And even the IWO, the communist schools, which before the 1930s were not very positive on a positive Jewish identity, they did Yiddish because it's what the workers spoke. Even after the 1930s, they began to study Jewish history and Yiddish literature much more so as a positive Jewish identity. The secularism was assumed, but it was sometimes implicit, and sometimes it came out more clearly. So I'll give you an example. In 1946, the Workman Circle published what they called Anaya Haggadah Shel Pesach, new Haggadah for Passover. And what did they do with the traditional Haggadah? They reinterpreted it. So in the traditional Haggadah, there's a song or a section called Vehi Amda in the praise section. And it says in the original Haggadah, 
And the promise from God to Abraham stood by our ancestors and by us. For more than one has risen up against us to destroy us. For in every generation they rise up to destroy us. But the Holy One, blessed be he, saves us from their hand. What did the work of circle version say? Leader. And what stood by us in all generations, our ancestors and us? For more than one has risen up against us to annihilate us. For in every generation, enemies arise to destroy us. What stood by us in all generations? All assembled say, our faith in truth and justice, and our courage to dedicate ourselves to all that is holy and dear, rescue us from the hands of our enemies. So it's our power, our belief, in what? Our God, in truth and justice, and our courage. Or my mother remembers a blessing that we sang in our Passover Seder, which was mere bench and delift. We bless the light. So it wasn't a traditional God commanded us to bless. We would sing mere bench and delift. We bless the lights in honor of the holy Yom Tov, the holy holiday. We bless. And we bless the lights, not above. Now, some of them did choose to have bar bar mitzvahs, but if they did, they had to hire somebody outside because that wasn't something that a secular Jewish school did. In later years, in the 40s and 50s, when they realized they had to do it, they began to do collective bar bar mitzvahs. Uh, the whole group would it'd be like a class graduation, more or less. They may or may not have included Torah readings or anything like that, uh, but that was near the end of this process. You see, what happened to these movements, these 20,000 kids a year getting a secular Yiddish education? Why didn't they send their kids back to the same camp? Some did, but why not as many? Well, let me give you four factors that led to the downfall. The first was that they were deeply attached to Yiddish, which in America was a foreign language. And America is where foreign languages come to fade, if not to die. Languages fade here, it's just what happens. It's happened to every ethnic group that's moved here. Go to, go to Minnesota and visit Swedish camp. It exists. There's Norwegian camp, a Swedish camp, and you can try and learn Norwegian and Swedish. And are they fluent the way their parents and grandparents were? No. There was a strong desire for acculturation to be part of the surrounding population. America was a welcome haven compared to Soviet Russia, compared to Tsarist Russia. Thank God, pardon the expression, we found America. There was an end of new immigration. One of the ways that languages preserve themselves is new people who speak it fluently come in and preserve that immigrant neighborhood feel. You know, one of the jokes was that people used to say, I thought that when you got older, you got an accent. <laughs> because everyone I knew that was older spoke with an accent. Well, but if you cut off immigration at a certain point, that stops happening. And it happened in America first with the immigration restrictions of the 1920s. And then finally, with the Holocaust and the decimation of the native Yiddish-speaking population that existed in Eastern Europe. After the 1930s and 40s, Jews began to leave those urban ghettos of the Lower East Side of Maxwell Street and move into more dispersed neighborhoods. And so you didn't have the reinforcement of Yiddish on the street that you did when you were there. And there weren't enough new teachers to replace those immigrant generation teachers that knew how to speak it fluently. In fact, those Jews today who still speak Yiddish are the ones who are still living in a ghetto. By choice, it's the ultra-Orthodox in Brooklyn and in Israel. The way to keep Yiddish is to not experience the outside world. And the word for secular that all these schools used was veltlich, 
Now, Valkleth literally translates as worldly, but it could be this worldly or it could be universal. There's a song that was sung to the uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Allah mentions Zion and Bleden. All men are brothers. All people, uh, mentions really people, all people are brothers. There was a sense of universalism there that simply did not permit strict and absolute ghettoization. I'll give you one example. In 1947, one of these Yiddish camps asked the parents, what language do you want to get communication from the camp? About half of them said Yiddish. By 1961, all of them wanted it in English. It's only 15 years different. And with the founding of the State of Israel, Hebrew became the preeminent Jewish language to learn. If you're going to learn something other than English, it was Hebrew. So Yiddish was one problem. The second problem was that they were attached to socialism. And you may have recalled a senator named uh, McCarthy, who uh, had some objections to communism and socialism and anything uh, to the left of him. Uh, there was a trial of the Rosenbergs, who were deeply invested in the uh, Jewish communist world and Jewish socialist world. Um, all of those IWO schools, the International Workers Schools, they actually had to secede from their parent organization, which was being presented as a communist front and subversive. And even the others, the Workmen's Circle, who tried very hard to define themselves as socialist but anti-communist, didn't work. They were implicated by association. Now, just as important to the, the problem of having attached their wagon to socialism was that the next generations weren't in the labor movement anymore because they didn't go to work in the garment factories again. They got jobs as pharmacists, as sometimes doctors or lawyers. And then the next generation could be professors or business owners from small shop to larger shop. Well, when you have a home in the suburbs and two cars, are you really interested in a socialist revolution? Less likely. Now, the other advantage, of course, was you could still live up to your socialist ideals by voting Democratic, because by this time, in the 40s and 50s, which was the party of labor unions and Social Security and Medicare, well, it was the Democratic Party of the New Deal and the Great Society. So the socialism attachment was a problem. The third problem was the self-inflicted problem of the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front. It was this hostility and sectionalism and sectarianism Refusal to combine until it was too late. Remember that Workman's Circle Haggadah I mentioned in 1946? It was largely based on a 1940 Haggadah written by the Sholem Aleichem Institute. Why publish a second one? If it's mostly the same and it's all in Yiddish. What? Why? Well, because that's theirs and this is ours. Doesn't work. There are battles between families, within families between what they call the Linka, the left ones, and the Rechta, the right ones. And the Workman's Circle, that was the Rechta. They were, they were the rightists. They were the fascists. I mean, they're to the left of anyone I know today. But they, from the, those who were on the left, they were too far to the right. And that went on for years and years. And the other challenge they faced was they were on the outs with the organized Jewish community. It wouldn't be counted in surveys. It was one survey that asked, do you do any extracurricular activities? And they say in the footnotes of that survey, we didn't count these secular Yiddish schools because their results were, were totally atypical. Because they did a lot of extracurricular stuff. So they didn't count it in the survey because they were so atypical. 
And they also responded at a much higher rate than the other schools did. So you're going to penalize them by not counting them at all. They weren't included in institute training programs. Certainly after McCarthy, no one wanted anything to do with them. They were trafed. And again, they were focused on workers, workers' children. These schools were poor. They didn't have a lot of money. They weren't raising from the big hitters in the Jewish community because they were socialist oriented. And the teachers were poorly paid. Well, some traditions can do. <laughs> the most important challenge that they faced was that in suburbia, in the 1940s and 50s, what it meant to be Jewish changed. When you were living in the ethnic ghetto, Jewishness was a peoplehood. It was Yiddishkeit, a Jewishness, a quality of being. When you moved into the suburbs, now there were institutions that were acceptable Jewish institutions. There was a vision of what it meant to be Jewish. There were Protestants, there were Catholics, and there were Jews. And Judaism primarily became a religious identity. You weren't living in an ethnic enclave. You joined a nice, fancy building. It was a synagogue. Your coming-of-age event wasn't a class graduation, wasn't a dramatic presentation, it was a bar mitzvah. Later on, a bar mitzvah or confirmation. And so what happened to these, many of these secular Jews and their children was they assimilated to Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism. They became part of the Jewish religious mainstream. I asked Fredo Pomerantz at her uh, program, what happened to all the alumni of these schools? I mean, I'm involved in organized secular humanist Judaism, and if a fraction of these 20,000 kids from 1934 were involved in our movement, we would be on easy street. We'd have other problems, but we, we'd have certainly not a problem of numbers. And her answer was, scratch the surface at a lot of conservative and reform temples, and you'll find those people. Some of them made Aliyah to Israel, as she did. Some of them became connected with the former conservative. Some of them married a more religious Jew and went along with that. But they're there. You just have to scratch the surface a little bit. See, today what people say is, I'm Jewish, but I'm secular, as if those are opposites. Back then you would have said, I'm Jewish and I'm secular, but those are two unrelated categories. I'm Jewish and I'm secular and I'm a Mets fan. What does one have to do with the other? Maybe they interact in some ways because I'll go to games on Saturday. But they're not in contradiction. Today, to say you're Jewish and you're secular, those seem to be opposites, because Judaism has become a religion. Now what do we in humanistic Judaism draw from this legacy? I think the first thing we learn is that we need to be creative. We're grappling with our cultural inheritance. We're trying to keep it relevant and influential on the whole person. Remember those guidelines of get outside of the classroom, it should affect them. It should inspire them ethically and aesthetically. Dance, drama, student creativity, those aren't extras. Art isn't an extra. It's required. It's vital to create memories and to create a meaningful educational experience. These early secular Jewish schools wanted to bring their cultural Jewish identity into their real lives. They used political activism. Some humanistic Jews still do that. But others apply to their personal philosophy of life. They apply to a sense of community service, their individual study and interest, their curiosity of where they come from. Any of these approaches share that need to do something new to preserve something old. The second is what counts as success? Creating a meaningful educational experience right now is success. It's not only what happens in the future. Who knew in the 1920s 
what later decades would bring with the Holocaust and the founding of the state of Israel and McCarthy, who could have guessed? Who knows what the 21st century will bring us? Who knows? What we can control now is how we are living now, how we are celebrating our Jewishness now, how we are teaching our children now. Let's do that with creativity and relevance. Those 20,000 kids getting an education in 1934, despite everything, despite the economic challenges, this was in the middle of the Great Depression, that was an achievement in and of itself, no matter what happened later. And finally, it's the lesson I started with, we are not alone. And we haven't been alone for the last 100 years. The most satisfying stories I find in talking to people in our community is they found Kohadash, they found humanist Jews, and they said, this is who I am. And then they said, you know what? These people are my community. It turns out, no matter where we come from, it's something that we've been saying for 100 years. And we'll probably be saying for 100 more. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.